Hey everybody, I'm Eric Tornberg, co-founder, partner, Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is an episode of Venture Stories, where we deep dive on topics relating to tech and business with some of the world's leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to Venture Stories by Village Global Podcast. I'm Eric Tornberg and I'm joined here with a couple of great guests, Lee Edwards, former CTO of Teespring, now active angel investor, and Nicole Quinn, investing partner at Lightspeed. Thank you guys for joining this podcast. Thanks for having us, Eric. We've, uh, they, they've just met and we've both immediately figured out that they're both wearing Invisalign. <laughs> and, uh, or Invisalign competitors. Yeah, Invisalign competitors. <laughs> and yeah, we're off to the races. Nicole, why don't you give us sort of a breakdown in terms of where we're at right now in terms of the macro landscape in terms of CPG, e-commerce? Like, How should investors be, be thinking about it at, at a high level right now? So we're big believers in exactly those categories. Um, you guys made I, a bunch of bets, right? Exactly. I feel like we're at a period right now which is between platforms and we don't know whether the next platform is going to be voice first um, or VR, AR or what it might be. So the fact is, is that people buy stuff. People are going to continue to buy stuff and brands will continue to emerge. And there are some great trends behind that, which are millennials are not as loyal to brands as previous generations. And so they want to try new things. They also want brands that speak to them, can be personalized to them and have the same values that they believe in um, and market to them in the way that they are basically be where the customer is with regards to marketing. And so uh, as we kind of think about that as like a broader trend within that, we think about, okay, well, where are the fast growing categories? Where are the large markets and also the markets that are really being disrupted? And for us, that is certainly areas like CPG, luxury. I actually just invested in a new company called Brandable and um, I went to Walmart, uh, so I went to Bentonville, Arkansas, and sat there with Spice Buyer. And he said, I haven't seen innovation in spices in 25 years. <laughs> I was like, it's so true. So many of these companies have not seen innovation in 25 years. Right. We're still buying the same products as not just our parents, but our grandparents. And so it's exciting to find these digitally native vertical brands that are really disrupting spaces. What is the, um, my understanding of commerce investing is similar to sort of consumer social that is that it's mostly reactive and that something's sort of taken off and you try to capture it before while you still can. But I get the sense that you guys are investing pretty early and think that you guys can predict sort of which brands will, will take off. And feel free to correct that. Is that how much of it is reactive versus like going ahead? How do you make that comparison between, you know, commerce and, and consumer social? So I would say it depends. I do think it's very difficult to invest pre-launch in consumer because an enterprise it makes so much sense. You invest in a founder who started like three companies before and because of their reputation and their ability to hire awesome teams, then they go on to build great companies. Whereas it's much more lightning in a bottle in consumer. And so you don't know that a brand is going to emerge before it starts to show the sort of signals to you. Right. And those signals are both quantitative and qualitative, right? Because like forming a brand is a magic kind of science. And so we have to look at like those different signals that create a brand. So for me, I mainly look at companies that have launched and have got some good traction. And we look at 
you know, we do like a cohort analysis. Um, we look at the repeat buying. We look at the their ability to spread the word. The word of mouth effect is so strong and important at these companies. But then, on the other hand, exactly what you're saying, there are definitely some ideas that we have which we want to invest around. And to be honest, there are definitely reasons as why it's much faster and cheaper to create a brand now than it ever was. And so maybe that's being able to have really strong content and now you're building commerce around it. Or maybe... Just grow that. Yeah, or yeah. Glossier or Goop done yeah. a really good job with that content commerce approach. And surely has some other examples as well. Yeah, totally. Yeah, for me, I think one of the things that's exciting about that is just, just the, the the barrier to entry and the cost to start new brands are just lower and lower and lower and lower. Even if you look at like Bonobos, right, which was recently acquired, and like the early team there was building stuff out with Xcart and, and that kind of stuff. So now you think about if you started that business today, you would skip all that. You do Shopify. You're the CEO of that company. That's like a whole segment of the business that is not distracting your attention anymore. Right? And so, and I think there's this big opportunity for for narrow brands that that really target specific interests. Like I, I love Walker and Co. for this reason. Like this is just a this is just a piece that has utterly been failed to be addressed by you know the legacy companies. And I, I, I'm inspired by that. I'm inspired by Lots of um, female founders that are starting, like, what if a, what if a woman designed, like, this product that used to be designed by men but sold to women, which makes, like, no sense, right? And now there's just this, this like, explosion of people doing this. I have to give you one great example on exactly what you're talking about. So this same company, Brandable, has a brand underneath it called Queen V, and it's a feminine hygiene company. And turns out, all products for women to use down there instead of soap have been designed by men and then as a result have the complete wrong pH for women. So it's like, oh, well, let's actually have a feminine hygiene company for the first time created by a woman for women and, oh, it works so much better. So yeah, the authenticity of founders is exactly what you're talking about. So important. How much, how repeatable is it if Andy Propinos goes out to build another DC brand? Like how, how much of it is sort of lock versus no, this is a formula just in the same way as enterprise? And then how how confident or humble do you guys think in your ability to sort of say that's going to be a big brand or like you know, this is this is going to work out? Like how much is it? Because yeah, consumer social side is really I think it's really random. We're really accepting our humility in terms of our ability to think which consumer app will will will, will work. Yeah, I, I think it's hard because I think there's this traditional kind of saying or slogan that like a startup doesn't really have a brand, right? The marketing that you're doing usually early on at a startup is like direct, right? And so you think of like one of the best books I read so far this year is called Seven Powers. And so in this section, it talks about all the different essentially competitive advantages of different companies and what stage is it appropriate. And they talk about brand as being a late stage kind of competitive advantage. But I think what you can do, even if you don't have the kind of brand that makes people know about you and come to your website first, you can have sort of a, a voice or identity, right? When you see the Dollar Shave Club, that very first ad, like you knew what they were about. And then hopefully they do a good job of sticking that name in your head. So I think that the way that I think about it is like, does this team know what the current marketing landscape looks like and like what they're going to have to do to be successful? I don't know whether or not that's like the correct filter, but I think that some awareness of the massively shifting landscape of, of advertising on the internet, you know, having some background in that is helpful. So the only part of that that I push back on is the idea of like, 
brand being a later stage point because I do think there are really great leading indicators at least of a brand very early so Rothy's which you guys can see I'm currently wearing for anyone listening who doesn't know Rothy's they are um, a direct to consumer uh, shoe wear brand made entirely of plastic recycled bottles basically doing what Lululemon did for leggings is what Rothy's are doing for shoes they're so comfortable they're like a hug for your foot and they come in lots of different colors. You can match them to your outfit. So they really, I mean, they only started towards the end of 2016. And they're showing really early signs of being a brand because of the high word of mouth effect. And so it's like, yeah, it has a high NPS. And then people love the brand. They come back and they buy multiple pairs. You know, I have lots of friends who have 14 pairs of these shoes, one to match every outfit. And then they spread the word. So it's like not only do they love it themselves, they also spread the word. And that to me means that you don't have to do as much on the direct marketing side and the organic is right. much higher. So what percentage of all transactions are, are online commerce? Is it like 5% or 10 It's like some very small percentage. It is 10%. 10%. You're right. Yes. And so given that, I, but I also feel like at the same time, Lightspeed is one of the few, there aren't that many firms that are like publicly super excited about commerce. I feel like it's gotten a bad rep. I feel pretty challenged that. Why is that the case, given there's obviously such huge, you know, 90% of the transactions not yet online, and yet it seems difficult to have, like, mega outlier commerce, I guess, Amazon, but like, why, why else are VCs not, like, seizing the opportunity and perhaps what needs to, to change that? I think a lot of people view opportunities in life based on their own experiences. And so if we look at e-commerce, there are definitely people out there who have scar tissue from e-commerce. They have been hurt through investing in the likes of Mocking Lane and Guilt. And as a result, just think, nope, all e-commerce is going to be like that. I don't want to uh, <laughs> burn a lot of money again. And so people shy away from it. But you know, as the times change, I always think if the facts change, you change your mind. Mm-hmm. And so we've got to realize that there are reasons now as to why brands are being built and companies are being built that have a hundred million dollar revenue in their like second year and that to me is a lot because of the exciting things that are being done differently these days and i definitely call out the influencer marketing approach as one of those um you know stitch fix definitely it was a key factor in their success glossier having essentially an influencer blogger at the head of your company goop having gwyneth patro a celebrity influencer at the head of your company definitely like you know is really yeah. powerful. Lee, you were curious about the portfolio construction. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, one thing I thought was interesting, the, I guess specifically around CPG, if you saw a lot of the Ryan Kaldbeck uh, tweets that kind of made the round in VC Twitter about some of the new stuff that's happening in CPG, I think one thing that was interesting in that was sort of looking at, there are a few high-profile kind of billion-dollar exits in the space, right? Like certainly Dollar Shave Club, which you mentioned. But if... If it seems like some of the explosion here is because more of the big companies are now being more acquisitive, and a lot of them are essentially just not investing in R&D, and I can't remember who, someone recently sort of officially announced that all of their innovation is going to be coming through m and I can't remember which company that was. I think it was several of them. Okay, I, mean, yeah. <laughs> I know that Estee Lauder have definitely yeah. said that, and I think others at CPG have also said the same, so you're right. So, is, so if, if someone's building like a CPG focused portfolio? Are they looking at, you know, can I find a few billion dollar outliers? Or are they sort of looking at, hey, these companies might get acquired at 100 million, 200 million, whereas 
that, that would kind of affect, you know, I guess which kinds of companies you thought you could go after, right? They, they maybe don't necessarily need to be like a super broad thing. Maybe they can be like a niche, you know, deep and loyal brand. So I'll answer this question with regards to your initial sentence, which was portfolio construction. Yeah. And I would say that it depends on the size of the fund. And so you, like any VC, as you now know, um, you know, thinking about it from like an angel perspective and with your investing hat on, we've got to think about could this company potentially return the fund? And so if you have a seed stage fund and it's say a $100 million fund and you get a $200 million exit, then that's brilliant. You've two extra funds from that one company and... That's a billion dollar fund. Many. <laughs> yeah, it's now a $1.8 billion fund. Yeah. And so $200 million is probably not the right investment approach for us or the right goal for us. And so we need to think about, okay, could this be either a single brand, like a Daily Harvest or a Hungry Root on the food side of things, which are creating a brand, you know, Daily Harvest started around smoothies and then have gone into like other product areas entirely direct to consumer and huge markets. So could they be multi-billion dollar companies? Yeah, I think absolutely. And then the other angle is, could you be a brandable and actually be more like a Unilever Procter & Gamble, which is like right. feed the oh, umbrella? Exactly. Is that what Rothy's might be? Uh, Rothy's, I would say, is um, a single brand. Okay. Um, but shoes, absolutely enormous mar- uh, market. I think that's really interesting. I mean, if you sort of look at... It's interesting that... We're sort of competing. A lot of these companies are competing with the brands underneath Johnson & Johnson. But what does next generation's Johnson & Johnson look like? I guess it would probably be much more data-focused. I yeah. think you're right. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And yes, I did read the um, Brad Colbeck yeah. Twitter storm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> big believer in that. Like I put out a blog post on CPG a couple of weeks ago and it's talking about the pain of the incumbents and the entrants that are coming into it. And so... I sort of have talked quite a bit about Brandable, but it's interesting because that is to me like the next generation one. When you talk about data science, like I think that's interesting because clearly that has been what's worked so well for Stitch Fix. Absolutely. Having 80, 100 data scientists has definitely been their special source. And one thing I wanted to ask you about, Lee, was your robotics background. Oh, yeah. Um, And so like as you kind of think with your robotics hat on, what do you think is the uh, future for these uh, CPG companies? Yeah, I think it's really interesting because if you look at how much money... And uh, Amazon is investing in Amazon Robotics. And they did this huge acquisition of Kiva about seven years ago, something like that. They're investing heavily in warehouse automation. And it's something that I think typically hasn't really been accessible to smaller brands. But if you look, I think one thing that might be interesting that might happen is if Shopify starts doing this, or the more the offline retailers that are smarter at going online, like Walmart, are you going to see more and more? this because I think smaller brands have, have access to those kinds of lower margins if they sort of do like uh, access to sort of lower costs rather if they sort of do fulfillment by Amazon they can get a lot of that edge but a lot of them don't want to do that right for various reasons part of it's like you know your, your branding also like it hurts your margins so I'm seeing a lot of companies that are trying to tackle that problem not only the Kiva sort of warehouse problem but the more cutting edge like pick and place there's a lot of companies that sort of they see series A the two that have been, like, I think the most public in the press are Embodied Intelligence and Right Hand Robotics. Um, and I know of a number of others that are doing this. So I, I think that's potentially really interesting. When you look at China, they're way ahead of us in automation. 
you know, I think, I think there's a whole lot of social implications of, of that shift if and when it happens. But yeah, I think enabling technology behind e-commerce has never been more exciting because Amazon, of, of that 10% right, Amazon doesn't yet hold the majority of that. Maybe, maybe never will. Who knows? I mean, Shopify still has a huge market share of e-commerce. Well, Shopify seems like a pretty inspiring business. Let's say I'm an entrepreneur looking to build a company in space. What other sort of infrastructure opportunities or enablement opportunities yeah. exist? Well, I think one thing is whatever you have to do to get the ship time down. Everyone knows, like, that's Amazon has just set everyone's expectation. That's been true for years and years. It's not like a new insight. But I think that it's been such a moat because of their investment in operations. But that, I mean, that may erode. I mean, I think a lot of 3PLs are kind of like rising to the task. At Teespring, we bought and ran a facility in Hebron, Kentucky that we printed all of our shirts out of, and we got Amazon level fulfillment for, you know, if people are willing to pay for it. So that technology is beginning to be there. It's not, it's not all necessarily automation. Part of it is also, you know, just logistics operations. Do you guys use Shopify? No, we didn't. So uh, Shopify, so a lot of the customers, a lot of the creators on Teespring, they're doing something similar to what you might do on Shopify. So the original Teespring business was sort of direct marketing, like, you know, internet advertising community. It's shifted over time to being more creators, more micro brands. A lot of like YouTube influencers, this kind of thing. So they have their Patreon page to like monetize some of their fans, but then they sell their merchandise through Teespring and they have a store page that they can sort of like brand and drive traffic to. And we're also seeing Facebook, if you look at a lot of the direct marketing metrics, these kinds of shop style landing pages seem to actually return a lot better. It was really surprising for me because traditionally you would think that like a very tight funnel that only drives you down one purchasing path might be the better converting you know, higher return landing page. Um, but uh, as Facebook has been constantly tuning their algorithms for user experience, they're really rewarding people that have sort of storefront style experiences on the other end of the ad. What's it going to take for that 10% number to jump to 20%? Like, how is that, that going to happen? So it's interesting because the UK has always led the way in terms of e-commerce penetration and total retail spend. Back in sort of 2006 times, the research um, person Morgan Stanley covering e-commerce and it had 10% penetration back then. Wow. And so it has about 20% now, um, so double the U.S. So in my mind, I kind of think, okay, what's going to get the U.S. penetration to be the same as the U.K.? And I think there's several things. So ASOS now, the vast majority of ASOS, and if you look at ASOS, it's nearly a $10 billion business. So ASOS is majority mobile rather than desktop. And so I think that... That's definitely one factor. We look even further afield at China and look at the success of WeChat and e-commerce penetration on there. So for me, it's further use on mobile. It's also further, it's maybe like opening up commerce through chat. And why, that was, that was huge like six months ago, yeah. a year ago. Why didn't that, it was just too early or why didn't that, this operator? Is that is the golden question. Like, to me, the big question is like why WeChat works in China and doesn't work here. The other one is uh, QVC and HSN have been such huge successes. Um, why has there not um, a really big, successful mobile version of QVC HSN for the next generation? And, you know, a lot of sort of ships have gone out looking for that. Um, um, you have one on your show, right? Eight, maybe? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. On our panel of the action. Yeah. Okay. yeah, absolutely. And the other thing I would say, um, which is kind of a factor in terms of greater economic penetration, is really simplifying payments as well. So the UK is a much higher percentage of people just doing everything over Apple Pay. It's still incredibly low over here. We invested in a company called Dote, and Dote have you know, multiple different payment options and really simplifying it. 
it's actually a really fun company. It's basically a virtual mall. So instead of you having a hundred different apps on your phone, you can just have one app and be able to shop from all your um, favorite uh, stores within it. And the payment's simpler. But in the UK, everybody is just on their phone the whole time, quick one swipe of the button to do Apple Pay. And so I think the US mm-hmm. is uh, definitely lagging for those factors. For sure. others. I think one of the really interesting trends I've seen, maybe maybe there's not enough sort of uh, sample size here to call it a trend necessarily, but I think another barrier that exists is the number one return reason e-commerce is still fit when it comes to apparel, yeah. right? And so I've seen so many founders tackling this problem, and it's been really cool to see the creativity and the different approaches to it, right? So there's there are people that are working on like 3D body scanning, which and, and I know some of larger companies are looking at that. I think Stitch Fix actually does a great job of solving this problem because they know your true size. And it's something that it's not only what is what is your body, what is your actual size, what are your measurements, but how do you prefer the fit to people with identical bodies in Ohio versus San Francisco actually probably wear different size clothes. And so I think that's one huge reason that people who don't shop online don't. Uh, and it's certainly one reason we are terms. I would say, so it's definitely a big problem in apparel. It's also a big problem in footwear. I don't know whether that's necessarily going to change. I think if you kind of get inside the consumer's head, they, even if they had a body scanner, if they're like, okay, you are definitely a size six, definitely. And they'd be like, yeah, but for free, I can try on a size six and it. And I can just send back whichever one I don't want. And even though I'm a size six in the jacket, maybe I'm not in the dress. So given it's completely free, no hassle at all to me to be able to like get to and send one back. I still think that's going to be the way that customers shop. It's like how they take multiple items into a changing room. That inherent customer behavior doesn't change when you make it so easy for them to do it at home. With Stitch Fix, it's like, here's your box. Yep. If you keep them and you know keep all the items, great, we'll give you a discount. So many people say to me, oh, I like three, but then actually it ended up only being like $15 extra if I could keep the other two. So I kept the whole box and it was so much easier just to keep them in that size because I don't care that much about shopping. It's a different customer. Like Stitch Fix will say to you, 50% of the US like to shop, 50% of the US do not like to shop. We cater to the 50% that don't like to shop. Yep. And so... It's much easier to target those customers rather than the people who are buying a really tight dress and want to get it to fit perfectly. Totally. So might as well get two sizes and pick whichever one's best. Yeah, yeah. I didn't mean to suggest the 3D body scanning is the right solution. I think I've seen, should have said it, I've seen people trying 3D body scanning. We've seen people trying to stick tailoring in the checkout process. Mm-hmm. We've seen micro brands that are trying to get rid of sizes entirely. And yes. so I think, I think it's just interesting when you see this many people tackling the same problem, you wonder like, is this, yeah, it's, it's possible that this is something that some creativity might solve. But I, I think you're right that today's Stitch Fix is, is doing this the best. Yeah. Yeah. For, for entrepreneurs out there who are looking to build companies in the space, what are some perhaps requests for products that you guys have or say, wow, this uh-huh. is underserved or this is really big opportunity here that people don't necessarily see? And uh, on the converse, where is, it, where is it space or subdomain where you say, I know this looks sexy. It's really, really hard. Or I, like, yeah. I don't think I'm going to touch that. Yeah. Like, Lee, I, I think you, I think you're somewhat dubious on DTC brands. Or not I, no, I, I actually love DTC yeah. brands. I think from my own personal investment thesis perspective, I'm trying to figure that out. I think, I think we kind of touched on this. Like, I agree. If, if I'm looking for a, a massive exit in a DTC brand, looking for those early indicators that, that you that you've seen over time and built up that recognition mm-hmm. is something I haven't done yet. I haven't, haven't built up yet. But I, I actually touched on all the things I think that. Or a lot of the things 
things that I think are really interesting right now. I think enabling technology and automation and warehousing and operations and fulfillment. Super excited about DTC brands that represent some kind of social movement. I absolutely love so, uh, so a lot of these, the sort of women-founded companies that are building products for women for the first time, I, I think that's that's really inspiring, and I and I'm definitely a believer that brands in the future will. I don't think we'll have such big monolithic brands, or maybe we'll still have them, but they'll be smaller, and and there will, there can be brands that sort of speak to to sort of narrower segments. That was one thing we saw at Teespring, like the shirt I'm wearing now. This is nevertheless she persisted. This was. One guy that sold seven hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of his T-shirt donated all the money to Planned Parenthood, and uh, yeah. Fair so I think those are those are two of the things I think are really exciting. I also think the I, I'm definitely kind of cautiously and from a distance looking at some of the stuff you're talking about with voice first VR AR type shopping. I think there's definitely some interesting stuff there, but I wonder like when the right time is. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point on that. Always got to think about the not necessarily just what product, but why now? So for me, within direct consumer, I'll go through the areas I think are most interesting, and you can kind of think yeah. about the opposite of that. What I think is not so interesting. So I'm excited about direct consumer brands that are either high, are either one-time purchases and high average order values, or multiple like repeat purchases and as you think about repeat purchases like we look at subscription but subscription works best with consumables right if it use, gets used up subscription is a much uh, better well, subscription works much better yeah. with those consumables and high margin is much better high repeat rate much better and so beauty is definitely a category that fits all of those uh, different points Someone said to me that La Prairie has like 99.9% gross margins, which is just wow. depressing. Um, <laughs> literally costs like 10 cents and they're selling it for hundreds. And so beauty is definitely a very high margin category and yeah. is definitely a growing category given the um, selfie um, yeah. Phrase that um, looks like it shows no sign of uh, stopping given the uh, museum of ice cream and fun places to kind of like take your selfies and put on Instagram. And so can't be taking selfies without makeup on. Um, And so as a result, color cosmetics really um, jumped up. And the same with like people focusing more on like taking care of their skin. So skincare products are just continuing to see growth and people wanting more indie brands to speak to them. Maybe it's like natural products in them. Maybe it's having a celebrity who really speaks to them um, and is authentic. We saw the huge success of Fenty Beauty, um, not direct consumer, but a really great brand within beauty that has wholesale as well as direct consumer. So that was just a seamless launch in my mind. And so that's a really attractive category. I do think that um, shoes, Rothy's, is a good example of like another category. What do you think about all birds, didn't you? Yeah, all birds have absolutely seen tremendous growth. Right. Um, like it really resonates really resonates so we kind of look at companies that yeah fine like it's resonating on the coast but is it resonating in the center of the uh, country and once we find brands that are really resonating in the center of the country that's when we think hey this really has mass appeal and it's exciting yeah Yeah. um i do i would say that you know rothy's caters first and foremost to the female consumer and so we get more excited about initially starting with a female consumer because it's a bigger market and then maybe going into men's mm-hmm. rather than starting with men's and then going to the female consumer. It's like, good to start with that big market. Right. Yeah. 
And what do you think about markets that have been underserved, like Dia & Co or something like? That's a really great one. Like, I think that um, plus-size women's fashion and men's fashion, actually, both being hugely underserved for such a long period of time. It's like go to the department store, go up to the 11th floor, and then, you know, find some little corner for a plus size. Like, that's not fair. It's not how it should be. Right. And so Universal Standard, Deer & Co., uh, Stitch Fix plus size. There's so many great companies out there that are now finding huge early success because the product's selling itself. People right. want good product in that space. Would a DN Co for men be on your request for product list? Like, has there been something for plus size men? We've actually been looking for a men's plus size company. And if there's anyone out there who's listening and is uh, running a men's plus size company, I would love to hear from you. We were, I was, we were looking at one, but we were worried it didn't have any data science background. They were fashion people, not technologists. And so I guess I'm curious how you, is, is that core? I don't think you necessarily need to have a CTO running an e-commerce company. <laughs> Sorry, No, that's totally fine. I think it's good at a certain stage to definitely have a CTO. But I think that great brands can be built without having engineering heads. For what it's worth, I 100% agree. I, mean, I, think, um, I think that's often a really good measure of a, of a founding team is how far can you get with the skills you've got, right? Sometimes when you're looking at a seed stage investment... You see a team that can't code and they get to, you know, 40K in contracts or something. Okay, wow. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah. You know, I heard this framework recently, which is basically there are companies that are easy to build from years zero to three and then get really hard to build from years three to 10, hard scale. Mm-hmm. And there are companies that are hard to get from year zero to three. But if you, like everybody example, but if, if you get it to work as, you know, provides our data advantages that make it really easy, you're much easier to go from year three to 10. And the business that was in the first category, as I mentioned, was Allbirds. Like, um, and so again, my question on DC brands is just defensibility. Like, how do you differentiate between, oh, this, this is a brand that is so powerful that it will be, you know, such a defensible asset over, over the long term that will not get crushed by, by, by competitors versus, oh, this is a, this is a flash in the pan or this doesn't really have, it's hot now, but it doesn't really have long term. I guess, how, how do you think about defensibility? I think about defensibility all the time with regards to Rothy's. And there are several things that give me a lot of comfort on that. In China, there are many, many companies that purely exist to copy shoes and handbags and great brands out there. One of these companies actually wrote to Rothy's and said, I have been trying to copy you as I copy Nike and Adidas, (laughs) and I can't. I cannot get the shoe to be as good as you have designed it and manufactured it. It is just truly a quality product and so that is one factor that definitely gives something defensibility like just a really truly quality product the other thing i would say is a brand and brand early on because yes fine i could wear another pair of plastic recycled shoes but will they be the quality product of rothy's will they look as good as rothy's have the same design maybe not and will they have the brand um, so let's take an example, like Away. Yes. How do you, like, is that going to be a, like, is a big outlier? You looked at it, but a big outlier, is that going to be like, is that a commodity or like, how do you? Away is hugely successful. I recently got one for myself and now I completely understand what the, the, the craze is about. I think it's a really great product. 
I guess for me, it was like several things. It was seeing them everywhere, seeing them all over SFO and JFK right. uh, airports, and then also seeing them in the airports in the middle of the country too, and just seeing people kind of glide them along, looked like, you know, great experience. They look good, they're easily recognizable. That's one key factor. And then they have that something extra, right? They have that special source. And for them, that was having the inbuilt charger. And having that inbuilt charger that you can right. now take out, importantly, um, really helps, especially... Last week, I was traveling internationally, and there were no American plugs in the um, hotel, and so I could use my away suitcase. It really helped me dramatically. Um, and the other thing is, like, when it arrives, it arrives in a great box. It arrives with a magazine, really playing into that content commerce approach. And it, it basically delights the customer, and that is what this is all about. What separates a product that will resonate with the middle of the country versus one that will only resonate on the coast? Uh, well, hopefully it does both. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I think this is something that, that we saw a lot at Teespring, right? Because we had so much, we had a lot of discussions internally about sort of like what kinds of designs we had. And um, and I think, you know, having having a design team, a graphic design team around and even they couldn't necessarily predict how well something would do. The aesthetics are just are just so different. And then also with, with graphic tees, and I don't know how much this really exists in other spaces, but the political divide, the political issues are, are such a such a huge driver, right? Um, and such a huge difference between different parts of the country. The um, Teespring really resonated in the middle of the country as well. So how did you absolutely. do that? But it was it was often different products. We sort of served both sides really well. The distribution of buyers around the country looks exactly like the distribution of population. So yeah, so things like the nevertheless she persisted get sold in, in you know dense blue urban areas. Awesome. Well to close, perhaps a last question. For entrepreneurs who are looking to build companies in the space, what are sort of the big landmines that they don't see? What are sort of the biggest misunderstandings that they perhaps go in and say, you say, oh, you should really pay attention to this and make sure you're thinking about this that perhaps are not obvious? I'm actually going to say one which we have discussed in this podcast, and there's definitely been many blogs about it recently, which is that there'll be lots of smaller brands, but there won't be many more billion-dollar brands. I am definitely going to stake a claim that there will be many more billion-dollar brands, and hopefully some of the things we've discussed in this podcast today will explain as to why um, and which ones. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming to the Global Podcast. This was fantastic. It was very fun. Thank yeah. you, Eric. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Cool.